Okay, it's my cell phone. Blog Talk Radio. What can I do? Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a world, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge, get a fresh new start. MJ Network will bring you there. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network. MJ after my sister, Marsha Joyce. And this is going to be a blockbuster today because we've got Nancy Allen here for Power of Attorney. This book is so cool. So good morning. I hope you can hear me now. I just hear you loud and clear, and it's wonderful to be with you this morning, Fran. Oh, I'm so glad. Somebody's got to cheer us up today. (laughs) <laughs> so tell us, tell us, you wrote this with James Patterson. This one is so good. And I've been telling a whole bunch of authors about it, and a whole bunch of people said they were going to read it because I told them to. So what, give me a summary of this one. Well, uh, Power of Attorney is the second novel in uh, our big blockbuster release. Uh, James Patterson and I came out with a big volume hardcover entitled Jailhouse Lawyer. It came out in September, but Jailhouse Lawyer contains two full-length novels, and the second book in Jailhouse Lawyer is Power of Attorney, and it is, uh, you know, uh, I write legal thrillers with Jim, and this one is about a big murder trial in Arkansas, because uh, there's a, a double murder in Hager County, Arkansas, outside the city of Bassville, where two middle-aged farmers, Dale and Glenna Maggard, are shot in their beds, and then uh, the killer burns their farmhouse down over their heads. But they live there with mm-hmm. a young cousin that they served as guardian ad litem to. And the young cousin, uh, her remains are not found. Uh, she has disappeared. And then ultimately, she is, uh, uh, she is found... And actually, that's where the book starts. But at first, they're, uh, it's just an unsolved murder. They don't have any idea uh, who the suspect is. And then suspicion falls on this young cousin, and she is charged with murder, the murder of uh, her two cousins that were her guardians. And it is uh, – it, if I do say so, Jim and I turned it into a pretty riveting story. It really is. It's really frightening. Tell us about Amber, and what were you setting the scene up for the future? Because Amber has mental problems. She's, like, not really with it. Or maybe she just hasn't been around enough to learn anything. Well, the, in her community, and, of course, they haven't had much exposure to her in a community, but the community thinks that she is mentally afflicted. They think that, yeah, think- uh, uh, that, that she suffers uh, uh, from uh, 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 low intelligence. And uh, we meet Amber, Amberland Travis. We meet her in the first chapter. And, you know, the first chapter in my books, I was thinking about this. Uh, I rarely 
introduce the main character, my protagonist. I usually don't introduce that character in yeah. the first chapter. I use the first chapter. Um, a first chapter in a thriller, you've got to grab the reader. And so I always, uh, uh, and Jim and I do this together, we, we use the first chapter to introduce something that is vitally important. And in this uh, book, what we're doing with our first chapter is to introduce this primary character, Amber Lynn Travis. And we see her, it is, uh, it is uh, uh, just before dawn, and she is out in the summer, and she is, uh, as, is just approaching from um, the highway. She is approaching a convenience store because she has come in from out of the woods. And she is wearing nothing but a tattered flannel nightgown. She doesn't have shoes on. And the bottom of her feet are bloody, so bloody that when she walks in that convenience store, she's leaving bloody footprints. And she comes in because she has not eaten anything in over 24 hours, and she's starving, and she's got to get something to eat. So she goes in there. She's the only person. She waits until the clerk goes in the back room. And she goes in there, and she starts grabbing snack items because she's starving. Yeah. And she eats some cheese at crackers. And she eats a Snicker bar, and she's eating a, uh, or drinking a bottle of water. But she's trying to hide from the clerk because she's got no money to pay for it. And we have a line in there that I think tells you something about Amber because it says that Amber is unaccustomed to taking things that don't belong to her. But at 23 yeah. years old, she was an old hand at doing what had to be done. So she's in there uh, stealing cheese and crackers, and the clerk comes out and finds her and sees that he has a shoplifter, and he gets a baseball bat, and he goes after this young girl, and he is just about to swing the bat, and then he stops. And she's down on the floor at this point because she tried to run away, but her bloody feet uh, made her slip and fall on the floor. And she stops, and that clerk, instead of hitting her, he recognizes her, and he squats down, and then he smiles at her, and he says, I can't believe it's you. Everybody thought you was dead. So that's our intro to Amber and our book uh, that's going to be all about this murder trial in Bassfield, Arkansas. Yeah, I know. It's really... So who is Leah Randall, and why does she return home? So Leah Randall is our protagonist. She's our main character, and we meet her. In Chapter 2, we go to Chicago, to a circuit courtroom in Chicago, and Leah Randall is a trial lawyer. And uh, she's a trial lawyer in Chicago because she said after she graduated University of Arkansas undergrad, she was getting out of Arkansas, and she was never, never, never going back, except, you know, you should never say never because that's the kind of thing that will make a liar out of you. So she has just won uh, this trial. She got a verdict that was a great verdict for her client, but she represents the, the, uh, she represents the insurance company. So what she got was a win for her law firm and a win for the insurance company, but she feels bad about it. Fran, she feels bad about it because her father was a, uh, uh, was a small town plaintiff's attorney, and he taught her from the cradle, you stand up for the underdog. You've always got to take care of people who um, uh, uh, suffer misfortune and the unfortunate and the weak. That's who a lawyer 
has to stand up for, uh, which is kind of a tie-in to our uh, title of Power of Attorney. So she feels crummy about this win that she just got because she won for the powerhouse uh, 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 insurance company, and that ended up uh, cheating uh, the uh, plaintiff who's in a wheelchair who deserved more money than he got. Anyway, at that point, she has just received um, some desperate text messages from her mother back in Arkansas, and her mother is saying, you have to come home, you have to come home, it's your father, there's something terribly wrong, and I am desperate. And she hadn't been in touch much with her parents because, like I said, when she wanted to get out of Arkansas, she was done with Arkansas. But she turns around, and she has to go home. And so Leah returns to the old hometown that she never wanted to go back to, and she's back in Bassville, Arkansas, and learns when she gets home that her father, who was always this powerhouse in her family and in that small town, her father is suffering from early-onset Alzheimer's. He's got Alzheimer's. And the family is just in a terrible state, and it has turned everything upside down. And her mother really, really needs her help, and her father needs her help. So Leah's back. And her father was the guardian ad litem of Amberlynn mm-hmm. Travis. So that means now she's also uh, assisting Amberlynn uh, with uh, – with the uh, probate matters for uh, the death of uh, the death of the two cousins by murder in the farmhouse, Dale and Glenna. Uh, well, my mother had Alzheimer's, so I do know that I do know a lot about. And you, you know, and one person gets stuck with, tech, with everything to take care of the home care and everything. So tell us about the people in this. It's horrible. And, you know, here again, um, I, I write Southern legal thrillers, and, uh, and with Jim, I write Southern legal thrillers. Uh, we do them together, and we always create small towns. And, you know, I am born and raised a native of the Ozarks, and I do know the small town areas, and I know what the people are like here. And, and a great many people are salt of the earth. There's wonderful things to be said about these towns, but there's always – some undercurrent. There is a mm-hmm. seamy underbelly in every small community, and uh, mm-hmm. and the books explore that, and this book does. And so we see these fine, upstanding citizens. First, we meet them. We meet, uh, for example, there is Hop Cole and mm-hmm. his wife Kate, and they are best friends of Leah's parents. He is the president of the bank, and um, and and his wife Kate. She's the head of this circle of church ladies, and they uh, they purport to do so much for charity, and they love to take on charitable concerns, and they have decided they are taking on Amberlynn Travis, who they believe is this girl who doesn't even have her wits and is now um, not only orphaned, but, but now she has lost her two guardians, and they're going to set her up in a little apartment, and they're going to help her with food, and she is going to be uh, the beneficiary of their charity and of this church circle. But as the readers will discover, Hop and Kate aren't really so charitable after all. Like a lot of people who like to appear mm-hmm. to be doing good for others, their, their, their concerns are actually mm-hmm. selfish. Um, so we, we meet them. Uh, we also meet um, Beverly Shirk, 
who was um, who was Leah's father's longtime faithful secretary, and uh, and so she's able to assist Leah because Leah has walked in to her father's law practice. He's a solo practitioner, so there's no one else to help out. He doesn't have a partner. He doesn't have an associate. Mm-hmm. So Leah has to step in, but he can't assist because he does not recall what's going on, and so she has to try and um, put his law practice to rights, and so Beverly Shirt does help with that. Uh, we also uh, we meet Trip. Trip mm-hmm. is the – every small town, if they're lucky – They've only got one or two um, uh, uh, medical professionals, and Tripp is the town doctor. Turns out he was in high school with Leah, but back in high school, he was like the high school heartthrob, and she was the girl nobody took to the prom. So she's um, come back kind of all covered in glory. She's a big-time Chicago trial attorney now, but she still is intimidated by Tripp, and, and they butt heads because Tripp is her father's physician, and she thinks he's not doing a good enough job and that he needs to shoot straight with her father. And, um, and so they butt heads, but he ends up being an ally of hers because when she does represent uh, Amber Travis, there's a point at which uh, it's very important that Amber receive um, a uh, – uh, uh, she has to have a full medical checkup. And uh, mm-hmm. so Tripp has to check in, and uh, he is going to become an important witness for the defense in that. And, and she and Tripp become friends. So they start out buttonheads, but they end up friends. And, uh, and there is a sheriff, small-town sheriff. Now, sometimes when we write these small-town sheriffs, sometimes they're the bad guy. But in, but in our mm-hmm. book, this sheriff is – is uh, uh, a good-hearted law enforcement professional that, like a lot of small-town law enforcement people, sometimes he only sees what he expects to see and Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily um, look through the layers to see what really is going on. That's scary, I know. I'm in a small town, too, and people are not that friendly around here. I can tell you that. Tell us about the vagrant who worked at the farm, and why was he fired? Okay, so um, so Amber Lynn lived out on a farm. It's a poultry farm, a chicken operation, and she'd lived there with her her guardians, were Dale and Glenna Maggard. They were distant cousins because Amber was orphaned. Um, her her mother died and left her an orphan when she was a little girl, and went mm-hmm. and lived with these cousins, and um, and so they. Uh, they lived on a on a farm and and were very isolated and didn't didn't mix much with people in town. But it happened that a homeless individual came by the farm and he was looking for a handout, wanted something to eat. And uh, uh, Dale, the farmer um, uh, who was the guardian, he told the um, he told the homeless individual that he could stay at the farm for room and board if he would assist with work. And so he was gonna if he would haul hay with him that he would be able to uh, uh, stay there for a while. And so when they are looking for a suspect and they're talking to Amber, even though they don't think Amber's really got a rich batter, Amber casts suspicion 
on the vagrant and says that the vagrant, whose name was Burry Jones, she says that Burry Jones was fired, that they had to run him off with a shotgun because he was stealing money out of the cookie jar from Dale and Glenna. And when uh, Dale told him to get off the property, that uh, that Burry Jones said he'd just come back and he'd burn the whole place down. So now, thanks to Amber, the sheriff has a suspect, and they're going to go off and try and find this homeless individual. And in fact, they do pick him up and bring him in for uh, for a lineup for uh, Amber to come and do an ID. Wow. Now we got the clerk at the gas station. How did she become important in this? Well, um, we meet the clerk in the first chapter because remember he was gonna he was gonna yeah. beat Amber uh, with that baseball bat for taking a Snickers bar, but he ended up being the hero who found the missing girl. Well, um, it happens that. Uh, Amber, when she is ultimately charged with the murder, first-degree murder of her two cousins, her guardians, um, they bring the, the clerk back as a state's witness. And, uh, and uh, even though in the beginning he was playing like the hero who, who discovered the missing girl, once uh, suspicion has uh, shifted to her for the murder and uh, the prosecutor is trying to uh, convict her of first-degree murder, they bring him in to cast aspersions on her character and to um, to identify her, but also to color her as, as a thief and a shoplifter and a bad person. Um, but Leah takes pretty good care of that in that courtroom scene. The, uh, the clerk uh, comes in trying to uh, make Amber look bad, and, um, and that's a pretty effective courtroom scene where Leah's able to turn the tables on that guy. Well, she was good. I'd like to see her with Martha, with the other one in, in Jailhouse Lawyer. Yes. Yeah, yeah, both of them together. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so Leah has, has to straighten out her parents' finances. So what does she need to find to do that? Okay, so her father has Alzheimer's. And so... Um, and so he's not making any money because his, he, he doesn't have any clients and his law practice has fallen down. And in, in, the, in their very traditional family that, you know, Leah wanted to break out of, he was very much the head of the house. He always handled all of the money. Uh, so Leah's mother never did that. She didn't know anything about the bank accounts. She didn't know anything about the paperwork because, or taxes or anything because he handled all that. He was that kind of guy, you know. So now that he has Alzheimer's, uh, the mother doesn't know where to look for money. And so and Leah comes home and says, he would have had disability insurance. He would have taken care of this. There would have to be IRAs. He was the kind of guy who would have planned for the future, but they don't know where anything was because he did it all by himself. And also, he had he was kind of secretive. He would he um, didn't have everything out there where he was sharing information all the time mm. with the family. So. Um, so uh, mom has gone through the savings account, and there's no money coming in. And so Leah, um, well, first of all, she has to help them by offering some monetary support, but, but that can't last forever. And so she has to kind of go on a treasure hunt to find the documentation and, and paperwork that is going to save them financially. And, 
and that's a little bit a little bit of a Nancy Drew kind of aspect to this story, mm-hmm. which was fun to do. To have her trying to uncover where would my very complicated father have put these items, and uh, so we had to see her journey with that. But they desperately need that stuff, and he cannot remember. So. I know my sister did that with my sis, my mother. When my mother died, when my sister died, I had no idea what what she did with my mother's stuff because she had they call it Marsha math, and nobody could figure out what she did with her checkbook of anything. It was it was, it was amazing. It took forever to figure out anything. So what oh, yeah. did she see at the farm, and why does she question the sheriff and the chain of custody of events, evidence? And then we got to talk about Amber and her aunt and uncle and. What they were really like. Oh, my God. All righty. They were evil. So, so um, uh, even before Amber becomes a suspect, um, Leah is interested in the farm because she wants to go out there because uh, in the probate matter, um, there was a will, and, and also Amber's the only living relative, and so, and so Amber stands to inherit. And as yeah. you know in this book, Amber is very interested in her inheritance. She is oh, yeah. uh, kind of a one-note song that she wants her inheritance. So uh, Leah goes out to the farm with uh, a friend of hers from high school who's a deputy, and they go and they look. I mean, it was a, a total loss, the farmhouse, and, and they've been shifted through ashes. But there were two structures left. The, the hen house where they kept the chickens, that did not burn. And there's an old red shed, like a tool shed, a wooden shed, and that's still standing. And so Leah thinks she'll look in there, and she does, and there's nothing very, uh, uh, nothing very surprising in there. There's, there's tools and, and uh, generator and uh, old uh, lawnmower and that kind of thing. But there's also a dog cage in there. And the first thing that's significant about that is she said, well, what happened to the dog? And the deputy said, well, we didn't find a dog. Wasn't any dog. And it turns out that after um, once, uh, once Amber is charged, it turns out that that dog cage did not cage a dog. It caged Amber, uh, that her cousin would put her in the dog cage. And so when when um, when Leah returns to the farm, she also sees that, that there are bloodstains on that dog cage. And, mm-hmm. that, uh, uh, and so she contacts the sheriff because at that point she knows that suspicion has shifted to her client. And she takes pictures of it with her phone, but she says, I want you to come out and collect this dog cage. This can't be left here. I, I need it as evidence. And, um, and, and and they're giving her the runaround, and they go, I don't know. We'll see what the prosecutor says. I don't know. You know that, that, and she says, I am going to take it myself if you don't. And they say, you cannot interfere with and contaminate a crime scene. But, uh, but so she has demanded, you've got to pick up this dog cage because she believes that the blood is Amber's blood and that you know, DNA testing would absolutely um, uh, confirm that. And um, because Amber, as it turns out, was misused at that farm by her cousin. Yeah, I know. At any rate, uh, she has just made that request, and following the request, somebody goes down, and uh, they burn down the red shed and the hen house, so that now there's no evidence of anything. That's what's really scary, because somebody wanted to cover this up. And not aunt yeah, and uncle. It's somebody who's not dead, because we know the dead people were bad. But there's somebody yeah. out there 
who still uh, involved some capacity to be sufficiently interested to come out and burn down that shed because dog cages. Yeah, and I there. know. I know. What's even scarier is that they aren't an uncle or dead. Well, too bad. Who cares? For what they did to her, you know, you have no pity on them whatsoever. I mean, and it's, basically, it's, it's an interesting it's thing. Um, we crafted a story that the under the underlying crime. Um, because what Amber Amber gets in trouble when the sheriff is talking to her and they're questioning her, and yeah. Amber ultimately says they deserve killing. I'm not sorry they're dead. They deserve. Yeah, killing. I know. And then she will deny that she did it. But those statements that she makes, they deserve killing. They deserve to die. Um, that uh, they use those statements against her at trial. And uh, I think when the reader finds out what they did to her. A lot of readers are going to have the same gut reaction, I think, Fran, that you and I had, which is anybody yeah. who does that deserves killing um, because uh, it's pretty horrific when we find out what she suffered on that farm. I know. The fact that she would ever be mentally sane and not have nightmares about it is even more better. I mean, seriously. So Emma, yes. what is, she just wants the money. I don't blame her. And she didn't really comprehend all the events. But what was found that was odd when she had her intelligence was tested? So Amber, so Amber, Amber was a poor relation. And Amber had a mother who, Amber always lived in great poverty. And her mother um, had, uh, had cancer when she was a little girl. And so her mother didn't get her to school in the early grades, K1 and 2. She, she didn't even get her to school. And then they'd hold her back. And then her mother dies when she's about uh, second or third grade. And, um, and when her mother dies, there's no relations to take her except Glenn, uh, Glenna and Dale on this farm in Arkansas. And so she goes in and lives with them. And she is a poor relation. They do not send her to school. But they don't homeschool her either. They, they just put her to work on the farm like she's just uh, an unpaid uh, 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 employee. She's just uh, an indentured servant. And so they've got her working on the farm. And uh, she's never educated, and she's not socialized. They don't, you know, they don't take her to church. They don't take her to play with uh, friends in the community. It's just her out there on the farm with Dale and Glenna. So, um, uh, so at any and and, and uh, but what she wants, what she's focused on when they die is that she's supposed to inherit the farm. And it turns out that she did, in fact. Uh, have, they did, in fact, will the farm to her, but what she knew was that there was a contract, and this very important contract yeah. in the story, that uh, upon her 18th birthday, Dale presented her with a contract and said that if she would sign this contract, um, he would leave her. He, she would uh, uh, get the farm upon their death, but, uh, but if she signed the contract, he, he, she had to do anything he said, and she had to submit to anything he would do to her. And she did sign it because she really didn't have the wherewithal. We explored this, that she didn't even have the basic understanding to know That's right. that, they, that they were not entitled to abuse and misuse her, and that there's no such thing as a legal contract for involuntary servitude or slavery or sex slavery. But she didn't get it because she didn't know. So, um, so at any rate, um, 
so after they die, uh, uh, and, and uh, after they die, and she is charged with the murder, uh, because of her limited uh, ability to have vocabulary, basic vocabulary, and understanding of, of the things that we all understand in society, um, Leah's first thought is she's not competent to stand trial. She lacks capacity to understand the charges against her and to assist in her own defense because if you're not competent, what, they can't put you on trial. Mm-hmm. It might be like trying to put a five-year-old on trial. Can't do it because they, they don't get what's going on. So what she does is she, uh, 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 she uh, hires uh, uh, and, and Tripper helps her with this. Uh, hires a, they have a battle of the shrinks where a state psychologist tests her and does a battery of tests for intelligence, and then she also gets her own private psychologist to test her. And usually in the Battle of the Shrinks, I will tell you, as someone who was a prosecutor, usually the, whoever the prosecutor hires, they always find them competent. They always say they're okay. Mm-hmm. They say, you know, yeah, they may have limitations, but uh, they, they can't understand uh, the charges against them and assist in their defense. That almost, almost always happens. But you can get a fairer, uh, 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 a, a, uh, a more unbiased opinion if you hire your own expert, and so that's what she did. But in this case, even her own expert said that she had normal intelligence. There was nothing the matter with her intelligence, that um, they did the battery of tests, and some of the tests she did poorly on because those tests were, are based on assuming that people have basic vocabulary. And she did not because mm-hmm. she never went to school. But, uh, but uh, when the other tests that are able to have, like, logic questions, and they show they can ask questions through shapes and that kind of thing. Uh, those, those show that she has great understanding. She just has limited vocabulary. So, so as it turns out, she's got to go to trial because um, even though she does have limitations in um, some of her verbal abilities, uh, her brain works just fine. <laughs> And, and it always has. She has just uh, been raised in such unfortunate circumstances. And uh, a number of the chapters that Jim and I have, a number of them are from Amber's point of view. And I think that the reader finds out that Amber's not stupid really pretty fast, that Amber, maybe her understanding of things is different, but, but Amber's not stupid at all. No, not at all. She's, 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 she's streetwise in her own way. Exactly, so Fran, that's exactly yeah. it. I told you I'd get something. <laughs> so during the trial, well, you're absolutely right. She, 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 everything goes right, but then all of a sudden it goes against her. So how did you create the courtroom scenes? I want you to tell them, like, the poor girl, you know, innocent, even if she's guilty, who cares? Um, so in that trial, so we, she is on trial. And she's on trial for the double murder, and they and they've got you know they've got uh, they have evidence, they have uh, some statements that she made, they have the statements that uh, turns out what that vagrant says when they pick him up is that she tried to hire him to kill the maggards that she offered mm. him. She said there was cash around the farm and she could find it, and if he didn't want cash, she offered him sex acts if he would just kill the maggards. So they've got. 
so they got evidence against her. They got a state's case. But Leah is in there swinging. She is in there swinging, and Leah is making great headway in this case. Leah gets the um, she gets the vagrant uh, in Cross X to admit that even though yeah it's true that uh, what uh, that she tried to get me to kill the maggots, but that he saw uh, he saw them beat and flog and abuse. Uh, uh, Amber, that he was a witness to, Gail Maggard, her cousin doing that, and uh, he said that in his opinion, uh, Dale Maggard was just one of those dudes that gets off on hurting women, which her, her reader finds out and the jury finds out is absolutely true. And when they try and get uh, uh, the witness who um, was at the uh, the witness who was at the convenience store, uh, uh, Leah uh, on Cross X. She kicks the stuffings out of that guy. And in addition, Leah has a uh, – uh, she's got one of those um, exploding pieces of evidence because Leah managed to find the original of that contract that Dale presented to her on Amber's 18th birthday where he said, you're going to be – essentially, you're going to be my sex slave, and you have to do anything I say. Now sign your name. And so she's got one of those explosive pieces of evidence. So, Leah, things are coming along pretty well for the defendant in this case until she has to put – and she does, I mean, she's got to put Amber on the stand. Amber's got to take the stand in this case. And, um, and she has to put on Amber out of order of where she would prefer to. She'd rather build up the case with some other witnesses, but she doesn't get to because of some circumstances that happen at trial. So she puts Amber – on the stand, and Amber, on the witness stand, is her own worst enemy. And I'll tell you, this happens. Leah worked with her. Leah told her, whatever you do, don't let the prosecutor make you mad. Don't let him get under your skin because the jury doesn't like it if you get mad. So you've got to be chill. You've got to be chill. You have to stay calm. You must testify, tell the truth, tell your story. Don't let him make you mad and by golly here it comes as soon as cross sex comes the prosecutor who um does a dastardly and horrific cross x and i tried as a prosecutor mm-hmm. i tried a lot of sex cases and the horrible things they do to victims of sex crime on the witness stand when they're prosecuting prosecute, um they still do that same stuff today. It is terrible what they do to women and children on the witness stand. And this prosecutor mm-hmm. does that to her as a defense witness because, you know, she's essentially saying, uh, as part of her case, she's saying, I didn't do it, but here's my reason for making statements I did. Look what this man did to me. And, and we go into uh, the torture that she was subjected to. And like I said, it, it pretty much – Anyone who would hear that would think that he deserved whatever he got. So anyway, but she's on the witness stand, and the prosecutor does that horrible, horrible cross-examination that happens to women in, 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 in cases involving um, sexual allegations. And because Amber is not as sophisticated as some witnesses are on the, on the witness stand, she loses it. She just totally loses it. She loses it, and, and – uh, Leah has gone to a great deal of trouble to get the shackles and uh, handcuffs off her for uh, her testimony because she didn't want the jury to see her all 
shackled up because it, you know, gives a bad impression. So she's got her unlocked. She's bailing. She's she's launching over the witness stand. She, I mean, she loses it. She absolutely loses it, and the jury doesn't like it. And so all of a sudden, they go from things looking pretty good for Amber to things looking really bad for Amber. And um, and so that's what we see how the how the trial is going back and forth and back and forth in which way it looks like it's going to go. Well, before I forget, what, nothing better than the ending of the month of November with somebody we all know and love, Matt Coyle, Last Redemption. On the second, we have, this is a wild title, Pickle Pink in Paris. It's a murder. The sixth, we have The Cunning of the Council of the Cunning. On the 8th, we have a panel show. We're going to talk about how the pandemic affected publishing and other things. The 14th, we have Nancy Walker. On the 16th, Cliff Diver. And on the 20th of December, Jeff Hines, A Plague Among Us. And then I am totally honored. On January 5th, New York Times author Mark Cameron is taking the, taking the spotlight with his new Time Clancy book. Not bad. bad. So you've got a big lineup, I should say. Excitement. Yeah, I just got the weirdest thing. I was supposed to get my teeth cleaned on March 22nd, but the tour group planned an interview for me, so I had to change it. So March is almost done. It's a good thing I put you in. So I have one more day in March. I can't believe this. Me too. I read Renegade. Oh my God, is that good? People, if you don't read it, I don't know what's wrong with you. So, so why did Tripp decide not to testify, and how would that hurt her case? So when, um, as they are uncovering, during the process of uncovering, all that had happened with Amber and her cousins out on that farm, when, um, when Amber reveals what her cousins did to her on the farm and the torture that she was subjected to because yeah, – that was his sexual cup of tea was to torture her. Um, uh, what, what she needs to do is have a doctor, uh, a physician, examine her so that they can have photographs and they can have medical records of the injuries to her that were caused by this torture. And so Tripp is pretty much the only doctor in town, and he is a friend and her family physician. And so Tripp examines her, and when Tripp sees uh, what she has been subjected to, because he's he's you know having to see it with his own eyes. Um, I, it it is it is shocking and abhorrent to him, and and that's when she and Trip, you know, he is going to be absolutely crucial for the defense because he's going to be able to corroborate what she says happened to her out on that farm, and he can do it. And he it what talk about a believable. Uh, witness, she's going to have the town doctor on the witness stand um, uh, backing up what Amber says. And so she's got to have Tripp. But remember how somebody burned down the red shed? Well, somebody, uh, right before uh, Tripp's uh, time to testify, somebody calls in a bomb threat to his medical clinic. And essentially, it's a threat that if he takes the stand, that 
they're, that they're going to blow up his clinic. And so he oh now is concerned about the welfare of his patients and his staff. And he's a doctor, not a lawyer, right? So he tells, he tells Leah, I can't testify. I can't take the stand because I have to, I have to uh, be concerned about the welfare of my people. And so he says, you've got my, you've got my medical report. Just submit the written report. No, that's not how it works. There is the best evidence rule. She's got to get Trip on the witness stand. So she and Trip, who have gone from um, enemies to friends, boy, they are back to enemies again because she says, you're under subpoena, and if you don't show up and testify when you are ordered to, I'm sending the sheriff out to pick you up at your medical office because she's got to have him, see? He's, he's that important. So anyway, um, uh, so that is uh, where she and Trip go. And also, we almost, we almost kind of danced around when we made this. Should she and Trip have a romance? Yes, no, yes. We never quite went there. We make them friends. But if if the reader wants to think that maybe after uh, the end, uh, maybe at the next time that they are together, they develop that they they could it because we were kind of kind of getting close to that but at this point she and she and trip go from a to z and a to z again they um they really have an interesting relationship well i like him but oh, um how come i'm it's, looking i'm looking at this why does todd come what does he play in this so i'm looking at what i have of the book in front of me The one who is Todd Fisher, and Todd Fisher is he the circuit? Is he the circuit clerk? Isn't that terrible? I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm drawing. Yeah, from the beginning. Yeah, uh, Todd Fisher, and this Todd Fisher, uh, the circuit clerk. It 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 really is more of an illustration of what because because we only see Leah's father as this guy with Alzheimer's. Yeah. But um, oh oh wait, so Todd Fisher, ding dang, Todd Fisher is her boss. At the at the law firm in Chicago, the way she left, yeah, yeah, and Todd Fisher, uh, he is that smarmy kind of uh, silk stocking defense attorney, and I mean for him, it's just all about the win and it's all about the money. And Todd Fisher is the opposite of Leah's father. Leah's father, Walt Randall, for him, it is all about the client and all about the welfare of the client and particularly the downtrodden, people who are being downtrodden by life or by the legal system or by the police. Mm. Those are the people that a lawyer has to watch out for. And so the power of attorney is or should be that you can help those people, that you can lift up the downtrodden. You have to protect those people. He taught her that from day one. And then she ended up out in Chicago working for the dark side. Who They were only in it for the money and, and you know insurance company money, defense money. But her father, it was always about helping the helpless. So Todd Fisher is the total contrast with Walt Randall, the man who raised her and who you know he was difficult to have as a father. He was hard to please. Mm-hmm. But what he taught her fundamentally about what a lawyer should be in our society, he was spot on. He was dead right. 
And so well, I agree with you because the opposite of that. I agree with you. I won't tell you who, but I've lost my faith in a lot of things in the legal system because basically you're right. Most of the time they just worried about the money they're going to get if you win. They don't care about what happens to you in between. So trust me. And, and that's, yeah, and that's not how the profession is supposed to be. And and so her father was old school. He was old school, protect the client and, and, and take care of the people. And that's how she gets involved in this case, and that's, that's what she learns. And she learns that her father uh, was uh, absolutely right, and, and she learns, as, as we discover, that she guesses she's her father's daughter after all, even though she had thought for years that they had nothing in common. But, but they do, and here again, it's illustrated by the title. And so, uh, you know, the scenes that she has with her father, because her father's got Alzheimer's, she's trying to communicate mm-hmm. with him. You uh, have had a family situation with Alzheimer's. I have too. Oh, yes. My father, what, my father was a, he was a solo practice lawyer, a plaintiff's lawyer, until he went on the bench. He was circuit judge until he was 70. But uh, at 75, my dad got Alzheimer's. And boy, oh boy, if... Um, if you've ever experienced that, as as you have, Fran, and I have, having a loved yeah. one um, uh, develop that is it is it is a heartbreaking, heartbreaking thing to observe and to uh, witness and to live through. And so uh, we were able to craft what I hope are very valid and and true to life scenes mm-hmm. with Leah and her father because um, because you know. Having experienced people with Alzheimer's, um, that contributed to the ability to write those scenes. My my mother was funny. My mother never used a bad word ever. She knew she knew all of them. When she got Alzheimer's, she taught me a few too. And I would walk into the room and she would go to me. You know, and I'm thin. She walked into walked in one day. She says, "I don't know why you're so fat. You used to be really thin." I go, my, it must have been your great cooking. I mean, you didn't have to laugh and cry. I mean, you never knew what she was going to come up with. When my sister walked into the room, she would say, the good one's here, you can leave now. I go, great, I'm going to go out and have some fun. I mean, you just don't know what they're going to come up with, and you have to have a sense of humor. Because if you don't, I mean, it, it, it gets hard. So how did you create the final courtroom scenes and the final surprise ending, which is like, whoa. Well, you know, uh, one thing uh, is that this underlying case, the underlying case was what happened with Amber and her guardian and the contract and the sexual torture. Um, Yeah. You know, Jim and I didn't sit around and just make that up out of our heads precisely because that, that torture, that scenario was inspired by an actual case that really oh happened in the state of Missouri, in rural Missouri, not very far from where I live. I tell you about seamy underbellies of these small communities. I, I know about it because, uh, because of where I live. So that case, um, uh, uh, actually, there, there was a young woman 
who uh, uh, was taken in by a man who had her agree to the torture, see? And then he tortured her nearly to the point of death. And uh, that's when, thank God, the FBI figured it out because local law enforcement was doing nothing. And, uh, and then the U.S. attorney prosecuted. And so, you know, there are some pretty terrible things that are done in this book. Um, we got those from the press releases uh, made by the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in the prosecution of this case. So this kind of freakish thing, it's, it's, it's a matter mm-hmm. of truth being stranger than fiction uh, because that was the spark, the seed that germinated into the book that is Power of Attorney. But, uh, but of course, you know, we do have final courtroom scenes uh, because Leah does – Find the evidence that will save the day for Amber. And there is, there is such a twist at the end that I will tell you, um, Fran, I have not talked to a soul who, who saw that coming. So that really that makes you pretty proud. Uh, Jim and I are tickled when uh, people, uh, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, yeah, I figured that out in Chapter 3. No. No one figured this out in chapter three, so we've got uh, we got a twist for the reader that uh, that we are pretty proud of, and um, and I I really do think that the courtroom scenes we made in uh, this book are just I think they're as good as you're going to find anywhere. Hey, are you listening, John Grisham? I think they're better. So um, so we have we have a. We have a rock'em sock'em ending for the reader in this book. Well, I have to tell you, I have to agree with you because I just finished reviewing the judges list by John Grisham. Being very honest, and the power of attorney was really good. It was better. Seriously. Oh well, see, I'm just gonna be walking tall all day now. So thank you, Fran. And his friend wouldn't say that she didn't mean it. Yeah, she would only speak true. And the the publicist didn't appreciate my greatness because I made it, he got some bad reviews. I gave it a decent review and I said to him, why don't you give me an hour on my show and I can, you know, correct some of the, he didn't want to. He says, we don't have that much time with him. I said, well, you're going to be sorry because I'm really good. And I thought he missed out. He missed out on a great opportunity for a conversation with you. That's what I think, Trent. Yeah, I know. And I think that Jim should come on next time because, you know, you know, he's really sick. That's not really, what could I say? So, Amber, at the end, where did she wind up after this is over? What happened to her? Well, Amber, you know, uh, Amber is still in Arkansas, but uh, Amber moves to a different community in Arkansas, which I describe yeah. as that community in Arkansas where the streets are paved with Walmart gold. And that's northwest Arkansas. There's a community. Uh, there's Bentonville, Bentonville, Rogers, and Fayetteville. And she ends up over there. And, in fact, she gets, uh, uh, she gets the community behind her over there because once everybody learns what has really happened to Amber, people really are wanting to help. And so she's got retired school teachers getting her, her GED. She's living in this uh, fabulous, uh, fabulous little house that's uh, one of those Airbnbs. And, and she's, got, um, she's got Hollywood calling. People want the rights, life rights to her story. So uh, mm. she's going to have some money. And she's getting that, that damn inheritance 
from those no good wrong cousins too. So Amber, she's gonna be all right. Amber is gonna be all right. And Leah, meanwhile, Leah's not going back to Chicago. Leah is uh, the person who is that exception to the rule you can't go home again because Leah's staying in Bassville, Arkansas. So um, never say you're never going home because life will want to trip you up and show you that, uh, that you can be wrong about that. So, so finally, finally, last couple, couple of questions. What's next for you, and where can everybody buy your book 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 This is way And, in fact, Renegade is my next release, and it's a solo release. Uh, Renegade, um, and it's about a young prosecutor in New York City. And so um, and, yeah. uh, she's uh, gets caught up in uh, kind of a group of some crazy people seeking vigilante justice, and then they turn their vigilante on her. So it is quite a rock and rolling kind of story. So Renegade um, is Grand Central Publishing. It will be released on March 22nd of next year, and I will be talking again, Fran, with you in March of next year. And, um, yes, you are. And it is available anywhere books are sold. It's going to be available, whether you buy your books online or whether you go to uh, uh, your local bookstore or whether you go to Barnes & Noble uh, or whether you go to Anywhere, anywhere books are sold, you ought to be able to find. Um, you ought to be able to find Renegade because it's Grand Central Publishing, which is another imprint. It's an imprint brother of Little Brown that puts out my uh, books with Jim Patterson, and um, and my, of course, my um, Ozarks Mystery series. If you like uh, Power of Attorney and Jailhouse Law, you're you're gonna love my Elsie Arnold Ozarks Mystery series. And uh, easiest way is just to go to Amazon. And uh, look for Nancy Allen, Code of the Hills will be the first one, and that'll, that'll set you with those. And Jim and I are writing on our fourth book right now, and at the same time, I am also working on the sequel to Renegade, There Is No Rest for the Wicked. Fran, I am 65 years old, and I, I'm working every day, Fran, but a lot of writers would be able to be <laughs> making that uh, uh, same statement, so I'm just grateful for it. Well, well, all I know I can tell you is that I figured out a title for my next book. I just have to figure out how to get the protagonist to get the person dead. The title of the book is going to be called The Last Grave. That's a great title. You know, I made that up. That is about a graveyard or whatever, and there's a grave that's open, but somebody has to be in that grave, and this one person is going to decide who it is. And why? As soon as I figure it out. <laughs> you know, I am terrible at titles. Uh, James Patterson is wonderful at titles. I, I'm so I'm so glad because really that is just absolutely. I I never can come up with a title. Isn't that crazy? I I was looking through stuff and for something else, and I said, wouldn't it be fun if somebody decided that there was one grave left in this unmarked cemetery where people have stones that are not even honored with their names. What can I say? But anyway, it's a beautiful day. Thank you so much. Oh, Nancy, this was fun. Brighten my day. Everybody have a great day. Stay healthy. Stay safe. And bye. Bye-bye, friends.